Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. I have the privilege and joy to speak to amazing human beings on this podcast. And all of the people who generously share their time to be guests touch me in a profound way with their life's missions and journey. One particular guest made me reframe everything I thought I knew about achievement and endurance and the why behind doing what we do matters. Her passion and purpose and her deep humility simply blew me away. Fiona Oaks is an elite marathon runner and a carer of over 500 animals at the sanctuary she founded in 1996, Tower Hill Stables Animal Sanctuary. She has competed in over 100 marathons and finished in the top 20 in two of the world's major marathon series, Berlin and London, along with winning the main start and placing top 20 in the Great North Run. Fiona has been a vegan for almost her entire life, and in 2012, she became the first vegan woman to complete the grueling Marathon de Sable, a race she has completed twice more since, and in 2013, won the North Pole Marathon and its sister race, the Antarctic Ice Marathon. She now holds four Guinness-recognized world records in endurance events, including being the fastest woman to run a marathon on every continent. Her successes are even more impressive when one learns she lost a kneecap as a teenager, causing her to experience constant pain when running. She does all this to promote an ethical vegan lifestyle and to raise awareness of her sanctuary. Fiona is also the subject of a documentary made by the prominent filmmaker Keegan Kuhn. His other notable documentaries include Cowsbirth and What the Health. And on a daily basis, Fiona personally cares for the animals she protects in her sanctuary. Her entire life is dedicated to the promotion of veganism in a positive, proactive, and peaceful way. And she is living proof of its sustainability, longevity, and viability for both mental and physical well-being. Fiona Oak's life is one dedicated to service. And this conversation has changed my outlook on life in many ways. And I believe it may do this for you, too. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Fiona, it is truly such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Your life's work and purpose is one that resonates so much with me. You do so much for the animals and uh, by extension of that also for humans and for our planet. And I am just so grateful I get to share this space with you and talk today with you. Welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And it's a great honor and privilege to to be invited. It truly is. Thank you, Fiona. You're most kind. Something that is really striking about you is that you actually stopped eating animal products at a very young age. Your own parents 
parents were not vegan. No. What inspired you to become vegan and choose this life? When I it chose me, to be quite honestly, it, that sounds like a little bit of a cliche. Mm -hmm. um, but I was so young, it wasn't a decision because I was only six years old. Yeah. It was a reaction, just a natural reaction. I loved animals. I didn't want to harm them. I've always felt animals to be part of my extended family, as I do practically feel about the whole of the global community. If we see ourselves as just one big extended family, it might help us to connect with each other better. And apparently, according to my mom, I was a very feisty and headstrong child from the moment I was born. And we never had dairy products in the house. That was something um, my mom just didn't like dairy products for some reason. She was brought up in the war. And there were, after, just after the war, there was the free milk at, at school. And my, my gran never allowed that. Uh, she didn't want uh, my mom consuming dairy uh, products and my mom was that uh, my gran was actually apparently called into school because um, it was considered um, a necessary thing for children to have so my mom never bought dairy products but they didn't meet and uh, I just simply always refused to eat meat from a very young age probably about as, as long as I can remember and, and never had meat and That was probably about three years old. And then uh, I started to ask my mum questions about where other products came from. Eggs. Why do we take the chicken's eggs? What's going on there? And I was very fortunate in that my mum, although my family weren't even vegetarian, she made a conscious decision to basically tell me the truth, the facts. And we were lucky in that... Um, My mum had a role model available to her at the time. This was back in the 1970s in a very sleepy town in Middle England. And I will explain now. I think sometimes people have some um, kind of misconception or preconceived idea that veganism goes along with privilege or some bohemian kind of lifestyle. My mum was um, a music teacher who fulfilled a lifelong ambition to go nursing when I was a, a child and my dad was um, in the mining industry and so he was actually on strike quite a lot of, of kind of formative years so we certainly didn't come from a privileged background certainly not financially privileged but my mum had a music teacher when she was at school who was a vegan back in the 1950s and because of my mum's connection my mum continued to teach when she left school because she was quite a good pianist she kept in touch with this lady who was able to articulate to my mum in adult terms what I was feeling and um, experiencing as a child so she was a guide and mentor to my mum and yeah at six years old I basically cut out all animal products from my life But I didn't. I wasn't really familiar with the word vegan. I I, I was just familiar with the principle. I didn't want to harm animals, um, mm. and so um, it's grown and grown from there. It wasn't. It's nothing I've ever done in my life has been a great conscious plan in terms of. I wasn't thinking by six years old I'll be vegan, and by the time I'm 25 I'll have a sanctuary, and by the time I'm 30 I'll be uh, breaking world records in marathons. It's not, there's never been anything like that. It's literally organically grown with me, and I've just gone where I've seen the opportunity to help animals in a very kind of innocent and childlike way. It's just been, everything I do is very much from the heart. The head steps in a little bit from time to time, but it's all done from the heart, and I'll just do what I can, where I can, for what I believe in. 
and that's how I've always lived my life. Indeed, at the moment, I'm in a little bit of a, a situation because obviously over the last few days, what's happened in Afghanistan has impacted mm-hmm. quite heavily on me because I've got friends out there who I've been aiding with rescue, very small scale rescue of animals and education in Kabul as to the importance of respect for animals. And now we're desperately, it's a very troubled time and all that work um, is in danger of obviously um, just going by the wayside with what's happening. It's it, all I can do is my little bit while I'm on this planet to help animals. If in, inadvertently that helps humans and the planet and the environment and in the individual health, that's fantastic. But I've always committed, my veganism has always been from very much an animal point of view and, yes. and how I can help animals. But yeah, I only I, I realise that the input I can have and the impact I can have is very tiny, but it doesn't stop me keep moving forward and driving forward to do it. And honestly, I think your impact is far beyond what I'm about to say. But even if our life's purpose and passion influences just one person positively, I think the impact is priceless and actually immeasurable because everything is connected. Yeah. And your what you just shared with us, your story as a little girl, just following your heart and knowing what's right. Mm-hmm. And it sounds um, so easy in a sense. However, it is absolutely, I find it absolutely remarkable because um, there you are, six years old, You your own moral inner compass is telling you, this is the right choice. This is what I want to do. This is what I don't want to do. You had the support of a very loving mother. And she, of course, had a great mentor with the other music teacher. So that was very fortunate. However, you still had a culture, a society around you that at that time was completely different from nowadays, where it's mainstream, even people who don't believe in it or don't partake in a vegan lifestyle uh, know what it is and know what the mm-hmm. principles are but how was that for you as a little girl and then growing into a young woman to live in surroundings that either had no idea at all or might have also been completely opposed it was difficult when I was at home as a very young child obviously I had my meals at home I always used to come home from from school for lunch even it wasn't so bad I was a very I suppose I was a loner as a child to be quite frank with you I was always outside I always wanted to play outside I never had the conventional toys I was literally always out in nature just doing my own thing I loved sport that's one thing that I still do love sport and it was quite difficult actually I think the real problems arose as I remember when I had an orthopedic problem with my knees as I entered my teenage years, and it meant me being hospitalised quite a lot. I had 17 surgeries on, on, on both my knees. And when I was admitted to hospital, that's when the trouble started from medical health professionals who actually aligned veganism uh, w- to be an eating disorder. And yeah. they, uh, my mum was accused, and bearing in mind she'd, she'd become a nurse at this point, they accused my mum of um, child abuse for allowing me to follow this um, lifestyle choice, this lifestyle path. Mm-hmm. So that was very difficult. It was a terribly traumatic time for my mom. And I will say that although my mom is my rock, she still she lives with me now, she still does all the cooking, she's still there for me. She's an incredibly active lady. 
but uh, my family um, weren't really supportive of her allowing me to be vegan it was just totally and utterly unheard of and of course then you've got all the accusations leveled at you oh she might be all right now but have you thought how this Mm. is going to unfold in 10 years when (laughs) some little waif and stray that can't get out of bed and lacking energy and that sort of thing so it was very challenging but my mum always said the cruel the only cruelty involved would be to lie to me and force me to do something which was I was obviously so opposed to which then in in later life I wouldn't be able to reconcile to so we stuck by our principles always have done but it was a challenge it is I think and it's as you say people forget that until a few years ago or relatively just a few years ago uh, people were not even au fait with the term vegan or what it actually meant. They'd never heard of it. They didn't understand it. But now it's just exploded and gone mainstream. So even if people aren't vegan, they generally know someone who is or, they know, or they're at least familiar with what it actually means and show the respect that it absolutely um, deserves. In fact, I was actually during the COVID lockdowns, I've been pretty much holed away at the sanctuary, uh, just looking after the animals and running. And I've used the time um, that I've been running. I'm very lucky. I, I run along the seawall, which is very it's very sparsely populated. You, you don't tend to see many people. And I've used the time rather than a lot of people have ended up on the Internet in, in a kind of confrontational way. I've used it more for contemplation and thinking back to things. And I actually remember in 2018 on World Vegan Day, I was invited to go to to Sky News to to talk about my veganism and the film that Keegan had made about me. And the interview took a different direction when I got there. And the lady presenter said um, she challenged me with a question. It was something relevant to veganism in the news at the time that a I think somebody involved with food, I don't know whether it's a columnist who wrote for a paper or something, had said that veganism, vegans were terribly annoying and he was joking about they all should be killed. Oh and goodness. she actually said to me, don't you think it's a bit extreme that somebody should lose their job for simply suggesting that all vegans should be killed? And this is kind of live on air. <laughs> really shocked and I just well, obviously what you caught on the hoof and I you know I just said I think it's actually the shocking thing here is to joke about anything any any life form whether it be human or animal being killed killing something or someone is not funny in the context of any joke and she was a bit taken aback by it, but that was only three years ago so things mm. really have changed um they've changed massively and also you know what you just mentioned the you know killing and popular culture and the way we converse with each other it's just so ubiquitous to mm. either glorify it or make jokes about it now humor has its place and often in the direst of times people survive and their hope survives by making light of very serious situations that however is vastly different from this cultural norm of where we have that we have of glorifying or making memes (laughs) out of violence and then it just becomes this cultural subcurrent which you know you rightly noted the this constant joking about killing people co-creatures and and just making a joke of it I think that's at a core of a lot of the problems that we're facing when we're having conversations about this absolutely it really is and there is 
there's a lot of anger out there at the moment and that's why I choose to be very selective I don't really get involved a lot with social media or things like that because it can be a very toxic environment and for me I care for the animals here at the sanctuary I obviously have people help me but I do I like to get involved with a lot of the care myself I famously or infamously get up at 3 30 in the morning so I'm always available for them and uh, I believe that you have to be obviously mentally and physically in the right place to deliver the care but you have to spiritually also be in that place and the animals are just innocent creatures and they don't when I go amongst them the cattle and the horses and the pigs and the sheep they don't carry the same burdens of bondage that we do as humans they don't have anger as we calculate it they don't have jealousy and you have if you want to care for them on their terms you have to go amongst them on their terms and you Mm. have to leave that baggage you don't want that baggage you have to go among them almost like the innocent souls that they are without the alternative and hidden agendas yeah I try to I believe that if you generate anger it comes back to you and it pollutes the environment around you so I tend to not I just am who I am and I do what I do and I do it from that comes comes through with every word that you say and what you've dedicated your life for that you live your life being for things you're being for the animals and what you just shared I think it's so important to curate what we allow into our minds and the social media environment certainly is a very detrimental for our minds most of the time just the anger the divisiveness the actually not listening to each other but more or less yelling at each other over our social media devices Mm -hmm. and also what you said with regards to the animals their innocence their purity it can be so healing People spend more time with animals in a safe and loving environment. I think the human psyche would benefit benefit greatly um, from it. You mentioned you have uh, your sanctuary is the Tower Hill Stables Animal Sanctuary, and you have how many animals there now? Five. Five hundred. Yeah, yeah. We do. Yeah. We have uh, cattle, sheep, pigs, horses. Have you got a huge herd of cattle? We've got Highland cows. I don't know if you're familiar with those, the ones with the great big horns. And you can learn so much from them. People, you could learn so much from their behavior. They're so accepting of each other. They're, yeah, they are just, if you went amongst them and saw their innocence and their similarities actually to human beings, how human beings could be. Um, I'd say that we all, when it's stripped back, we all require and desire the same things food shelter water love camaraderie safety security we're not so different from the animals that we abuse very often and exploit and it's amazing to just it's very therapeutic to be around them and to see them interact with each other I like to do it on as natural a basis as I can in terms of I like to I I like to really when they come to the sanctuary I like to release them back to themselves and allow them to be themselves rather than to be some homogenized human being that I can manage I like to see them in their own groups amongst each other yes reacting with each other and I like to keep it obviously I can't I don't I can't allow them to breed in terms of 
as they would in the wild. But everything else, I like them to have as much space to run free. I love to open up all the fields to them and I love to know that they can follow the sun. They can shelter on the hedgerows as they would in the wild, in natural environment. I also keep um, with the horses and the cattle, uh, well, all the animals actually, I keep the old and the young together. I believe that the older animals can teach the young so much and the younger animals can keep the older ones useful and interested and invigorated and vital, as it would be in the wild keep them in herds, keep them as as naturally as I can possibly provide for them, given the fact that they have to be enclosed in an environment of sanctuary, of the sanctuary. But I, I don't believe, I don't see animals as possessions or ownership, other than the fact that I'm blessed enough to be able to provide for this group of animals here and keep them safe and secure. But you always focus more on the bigger picture and the ones that you can't physically touch and the ones that you can't physically give a lifelong kind of and forever home to. They're the ones that I'm more... You never think about what you can do. You're always concentrating on the things that you would like to do and that those that you can't do. But, yeah, it's yeah, it's a very tough world for animals, especially the ones that don't find, the ones in abusive and exploitative industries, and there are so many. But it is changing. It is changing. It is vastly changing. I'm currently, as we speak, I am in Finland, and this is not a country that's particularly known for veganism. The hunter-gatherer mentality has survived for many years, and it's very focused on wild game and fishing. However, Mm. the number of people who identify as vegan or who choose to eat more and more plant-based products and replacing the animal-based products Mm -hmm. is growing also in Finland. Mm -hmm. And it is especially the younger people who have an innate sense of the connectedness with everything, nature, Mm -hmm. our creatures, and also feel a sense of responsibility for what is happening to the other living creatures and to the planet. It's been very interesting for me to experience this here. Unexpected and a really mm. wonderful experience. Yeah. And, you, know, you mentioned when you were a little girl, and this was just a natural decision for you, you got a little bit into it, but where does your love that rings through and everything you say, just when you talked about the sanctuary mm-hmm. and the animals, but where does your love for animals come from? Is it this sense of interconnectedness? What is at the core of it? It's just like in my soul. I, I can't pinpoint any particular pivotal moment or it's always been there. It's it's part of me. It's part of the makeup that makes Fiona. Do I have a, a kind of history, a family history of this? Not to my knowledge, no. It's just something that is very, I won't say unique to me, but it's always been there as long as I can remember and before, I'm sure it's been there. My mum pinpoints things like, as a child, I, I didn't play with any conventional toys. It was just animals that I wanted to, like, a cow or something like that I always just wanted it would seem to be that I was connected to and it is just literally I you you it's every fiber of me I can't think where this ends and another Fiona begins because it's just the whole package and it's it's always been that way and I I think it's 
completely natural and it is completely natural to me but I hadn't realized how completely unnatural it was to many people out there until I went through adolescence into adulthood and realized that hang on a minute not everybody feels like me why don't they feel like me I can't understand why they feel don't feel like this obviously from my my uh, perspective the, the easiest decision and the most effective decision you can make regarding to help animals everyone can do it it's very easy now is that decision that you make on your plate to not consume them and then obviously that grew and grew I've always loved animals and it was a dream to have a sanctuary but ultimately I don't want to live in a world where sanctuaries are needed Mm. I I don't want to live in that world I want to live in a world where there is no need to rescue animals from the most appalling exploitative industries I don't want that I I I want it to to live in a world where where it's a redundant kind of idea that we will will, these places will be needed I, I don't I think that's probably a long way off but after that I realized when I I fulfilled what I thought was my lifelong dream, I'd never thought it would ever happen to have a sanctuary. And I started the um, Tower Hill Stables in 1996 when the idea of sanctuaries was not prevalent at the time. The idea of rescuing animals was not prevalent at the time. The only time you ever saw animals really, you know, zoos and things like that had animals, not sanctuaries. There weren't, there, there was no great role models out there. You know, I want a sanctuary like, they just weren't out there. And indeed, I didn't start the sanctuary. I didn't think I wanted to start a sanctuary. I wanted to provide sanctuary for the animals that I'd already rescued. Because I was doing rescue from my kind of tiny little home. And I got horses at um, a local farm. And um, I used to work long, long hours in London to pay for it all. And I used to cycle to work. And it's about 40 miles cycle each way to work and uh, I used to do go to see the horses on the way to work and on the way home from work and one day I remember um, coming home and um, I called the I got um, eight rescued horses and seven of them came to me and one didn't and that was Oscar a retired um, racehorse that I've been rehabilitating for a couple of years and he didn't Where's Oscar? And I went into the field and I found him impaled on a fence. He'd got Mm. a a terrible injury. He went to the vet. He was at the vet for 13 weeks. And it was at that point that I had to do something. That was the real push, the real kind of you've got to do something. You can't continue using this model of allowing other people to have this interventional care of your animals and leave them in their custody while you go off to work we've got to do something different and that's when my family went absolutely all out to try and raise the money to be able to get a place a small place with a small bit of land where the animals could be safe the ones that I'd already rescued at that point we managed to um purchase uh Tower Hill. It was, I say, my great aunt, she was 98 years old. And she, I remember my mum telling her, Auntie Nancy, there's a chance Fiona might be able to get somewhere for the animals, but we're desperately trying to raise money. And Auntie Nancy went to her mattress, as many elderly people do in this country, and she had a sock filled with a thousand pounds for her funeral money. And she said, give it to Fiona and I'll just have to make sure I don't die. She must, we must go with this. We must try to make this happen. And it was really tough at the time. We had absolutely nothing, but we managed to get this small acreage that was Tower Hill and start 
to provide safety and sanctuary for the animals that I'd already rescued. And three days after taking the keys to Tower Hill, Oscar came home and he lived there very happily for three years until he passed away of old age. But that was what started the actual rescue side of things. And then after that, it was a few years after that, that I figured out that I was rescuing more and more animals. Now I'd got a a, a situation where I could rescue ex-farmed animals, like, you know, cattle and sheep and pigs. But um, it was, I I realised I can rescue four animals. I could rescue even 400 if I had more room. But the billions and billions are out there that I can't actually do anything for that are going through these industries on a daily basis, living in horrendous situations. I can't touch. And that's when I came up with the idea of um, trying to promote veganism more more heavily. And it was a bizarre situation because back before social media or even the internet, it was, what do I do? How can I have a platform to speak out and say that the way forward for the planet, certainly for the animals, for personal health, for the future is veganism. But you've got to have some kind, you've got, at the time, you've got to use the mainstream media, basically. And um, how, how old were you at the time, Fiona? I was, uh, I was probably 30, 31, yes. 32. And I'd come from a sports background. When I'd had my surgeries, I'd been told I would never walk again properly, let alone be able to run. And that still is the case. I do limp when I run. So I'd been cycling and I'd done some bike racing. But there was absolutely no interest in um, any sport, particularly for women. Okay, you might get very beautiful tennis players that people were showing an interest in. I wasn't going to take up tennis and I wasn't certainly not beautiful in the conventional terms. So I wasn't going to get any interest like that. But in the UK, the hot ticket within sport was marathon running because Paula Radcliffe was doing so well in the marathon. And she'd built this interest. She'd built the kind of vibe around the marathon that I wanted to project in terms of this is the toughest athletic event in the calendar. It's mentally and physically draining, demanding, the discipline required. It's just monumental. And so that was the kind of what I wanted to prove that as a vegan, if I could run a marathon or at least compete in and complete a marathon, then it's definitive proof that as a vegan, you can do anything. So that's when I thought I just intended to see if I could run and if I could just compete in a marathon, really, and complete one, hopefully. I will say to to viewers who are younger, there weren't that many. Now it seems to me there's a marathon on every corner. But at the time, there were only really the big city marathons, big races. It wasn't a a terribly popular sport. And marathon running tended to be for quite serious runners. There certainly weren't the fun running uh, events, not in the UK anyway. And so I set about working out how you would basically get around a marathon, get around 26.2 miles. And the whole running thing has gone from there. I know it came from a short period of time that within two years, I'd not just like competed in and completed the marathon. I was actually qualified to run on the elite start of the London Marathon, basically shoulder to shoulder with Paula Radcliffe. Um, yep. so, and it's uh, worthwhile to mention again, you mentioned it before, you did all this while you were also in pain, 
you were limping not only as a vegan and any of your endurance and the muscle that was built was not built from animal protein, but it was mm -hmm. built on a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. On top of that, you were dealing with your pain mm -hmm. and you competed in, I think it's over 100 marathons, right? Yeah, I've competed in over 100 marathons. I, I tactically, um, my, my marathon running career, if you like it, has always been very strategic for the animals. So I started conventionally in terms of the idea was run two big city marathons a year. That worked out very well in terms of financially and time-wise. Financially, because um, I was at a level where big race organizers like Mark Mild in Berlin or Jas Hermans in Amsterdam would actually contact me and ask me, do you, do you want to run my marathon? We need some decent runners on the start line of the elite ladies race. So I might get my expenses paid and a hotel. And also I didn't need to be away from the sanctuary very long for the animals. So your big European marathon, I could be there and back in a couple of days. So it was win-win for me. And so I started just literally, it was bizarre when I think what I do or I did, I just used to select two marathons, one in the autumn, one in the spring, and work about a four and a half month training cycle, building up to them to try and go and place. And I placed top 20 in the London marathon, top 10 in, in kind of Amsterdam, real gold standard marathons where only the, the East Africans were beating me. I have, I've never had a coach. I've never even had a massage. I've never had a, a physio. <laughs> I've literally self-taught myself to do this. And that's what I want to convey to people. Yeah, the products and, and the, the bits and bobs that you can buy are great. And, and they may have a placebo effect and people might feel a lot more comfortable using them. I don't know. But for me, it was done on sheer determination to prove a point in a positive way proactive and peaceful way I did when I started to like run sub 250s and stuff people were starting to take note and say could I probably get a coach to help me but generally speaking actually you absolutely speaking the people I approached didn't want to know because of course you've got some ability but your diet is going to prohibit you from actually moving forward and the, the diet my veganism is the only reason I am moving forward in yep. terms of wanting to promote it so that was not, you know so not negotiable how off these people were because yeah. uh, all that you've achieved for the listeners you've already mentioned the Berlin and the London marathons you also in 2012 became the first vegan woman to complete the Marathon de Sable mm -hmm. which is a grueling race and you've yeah. competed I think twice more since yeah. and you in 2013 you won the North Pole Marathon yeah. and also its sister race the Antarctic Ice Marathon you hold mm -hmm. four Guinness world records and endurance yeah. events yeah. including being the fastest woman to run a marathon on every continent yeah. having achieved all of this and you were running you were fueled by your purpose and you have faced things physically and psychologically achieving these uh, amazing things that hardly anyone of us uh, goes through in life. What for you was the toughest challenge that you faced so far? I think the toughest, certainly with my running, 
looking back on it, although I say that motivating myself to go out and train, uh, I, I was always doing it for a reason. Self-motivating, always being alone, always pushing yourself. The only person I have ever had to answer to is myself. For instance, you could skip a training session and no coach was going to say, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you hit that mark? It was, I was always answering to myself. Long periods of uh, training where I'd, I'd run 100 miles a week, three speed sessions. I never, ever missed a session. Ever don't meet what I'm supposed to meet. That's been hard. And I think what has also been very hard is on reflection, the fact that I kept raising the bar because I wasn't getting the re- recognition for the cause that I was doing it. That's been very frustrating in terms of the fact that back in 2004, when I um, qualified to run the Elite Start in London, which was a massive opportunity because, of course, the race goes off 45 minutes ahead of the main field and the men. So we've got a small handful of women running completely alone in probably the most biggest and high-profile marathon, certainly in Europe, possibly even at the time in the world. That's when I started the Vegan Runners, uh, the running club, which is now, I think, the one of the largest running club in the UK by membership. The vest, the green and black is known all throughout the world. And it was simply because I wanted to promote the word vegan. I didn't want to promote Fiona Oaks. I'm not mm. interested in Fiona Oaks. It was literally the idea that people would associate the elite start, which is the best start with the elite diet, which is vegan. But you've got to have it written on your chest. And to do that, to run on some of these major starts, because they're so um, defensive of their of their advertising, you've got to run in an affiliated UK athletics club closing. And that's when we started Vegan Runners, purely so people could fleetingly grab that word as you pass. Outstanding. And, and I have and- a question for you, because in your interviews, you often talk about the difference between being vegan and being plant-based. Can you yeah. explain what it means to you to be vegan? To, to me, you could be plant-based in your diet, yeah, and you could wear leather shoes and you could go to watch greyhound racing. You see what I mean? It's just plant-based is just mm-hmm. what you eat. Yeah. For me, vegan, it's mm-hmm. all-encompassing. It's how you feel and the ethical stance you, you choose to promote in a peaceful way, all forms of animal advocacy. So it's not just about what you eat, it's about the way you conduct your life as well. Some people don't feel comfortable with using the word plant-based and some people don't feel comfortable with using the word vegan. And at the time, there really wasn't a plant-based issue. It was just vegan and that was where I am and what I am and and who I who who I choose to be and um that was the running club that we started it was a vegan running club with an ethical stance um about animal advocacy and animal welfare plant-based now a lot of people are saying that somebody wrote to me and said did you know that um vegans can now eat mussels because they haven't got some sort of uh, I don't know whether it was a central nervous system yeah central nervous system and it was like no but it's obviously the crossover but for me uh, veganism is just not just about what you eat it's about everything you choose to do in your life Um, and it's different 
everybody's veganism is 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 different everybody's interpretation is different and I try and I'm an individual everyone's unique and their perspectives are unique based on their experiences of life but that's for me what it's about so it's not just about a diet in fact people a lot of people say when you're fueling yourself for a week in the desert 250 kilometers carting this huge backpack what do you eat what do you eat and I'm trying to say I'm not really a food person in terms of the fact that I see food as a fuel and I actually only eat one meal a day and I never snack in between which people find really bizarre but it works for me and it's just I just see food as long as it's vegan as the fuel which allows me to go on and um, do the more important things in life to me than worry about what I'm going to have for my meal and I I, I remember I went to a um, plant-based health professionals um, conference and usually when I do my little talks it's me and my little teddy Percy bear and we connect with people and tell them about our adventures and I remember going into the auditorium and the lady that had organized it said to um, the people there would you raise your hand if you're a consultant or a doctor or a health professional and practically all the hands went up and I thought oh no I'm punching way above my weight here with Percy Bear so it's quite oh what am I going to talk about and I felt embarrassed to to tell people that I I genuinely only have one meal a day in the evening and I thought well I've got to be honest because it's no good suddenly starting to lie and oh yes I do all this and I do all that because I don't and I, I reflected on it and I think to myself I'm so blessed that I do not live in um, a situation where um, food insecurity or even food poverty I don't I suppose this has come very much to me in terms of what's happening at the moment in Kabul with my friends. Five and a half million people in Afghanistan live in food insecurity and the winter's come and they're very harsh. And now they've got this terror situation that's going on around them of of horrible torture and, and violence. I don't live in that situation. I live in a situation whereby I know there will be food for this one meal a day and I sit and consume it with love with my mom and my dad who's still here how blessed am I so to fixate more over and above that I have enough food and that it's vegan food it seems wrong to me if I'm, I'm honest I, I am I'm humbled by the luxury I have I don't live in luxurious circumstances by any stretch of the imagination but the luxury of being able to turn on a tap and for water to come out that I can drink really is a very, I, I feel blessed. And when I think if you open your eyes, your mind, your heart to the horrors that some people and animals face around the world, you start looking at your own life with a little bit of a different perspective in terms of rather than looking at what you have not got, looking at what you have got and the really important things during the pandemic I had hoped that people would reflect a little bit and, and see that ultimately health is real wealth. Being healthy enough to do things and being healthy enough to, to be able to help others 
is a major blessing. And I do live an extreme life. I do get up at half past three. I do eat one meal a day. I do work all the hours God sends. Yes, I'm a firefighter. Yes, I do all these other things as well. But ultimately, I live in a country where although it's hopeless, and it certainly did when I started off trying to promote veganism, I have not been helpless. I have at least been able to fulfill the the need in me to be able to try and go out there and make change. Um, And for that, I do feel truly blessed. So, yeah, uh, there's a funny story, actually, to do with my um, one meal a day. I went to... And would also love to know what that one meal a day usually consists of. The funny story is that I lead this bizarre life with my marathon running in terms of I am Miss Ultra Amateur Runner, you would ever imagine. I know literally nothing about running. I literally know nothing about running. So when I go to races and everybody's really clued up on the latest kind of, you know, uh, proteins and this, that, I, I just don't know anything about it. I just keep quiet and I, I will say that I've, I've never ever in a race in a marathon race taken on board anything but plain water and I've been to some races when gels became popular and I've stood next yeah. to people that look like they're wearing a grenade belt they've got so many gels about <laughs> their person and I'm thinking I've got nothing in fact I went to one race and it, I think it was the it, Amsterdam marathon and um, for the elite runners they were offering a service of you left your water bottles with ribbons or whatever you're going to tie around them outside your bedroom door the night before the race or the morning of the race. And they would take them and put them on the elite bottle stations for you so you could get what you wanted. And I was sharing with my mum used to travel with me to all these races. And I remember saying, I haven't got any. I was just going to take plain water. So we then decided, because I wanted to be part of the elite race experience, that what we would actually do is put plain water into the elite the bottles, put my little ribbons around them, and I would take them from the water stations because I simply did not have any. I never have anything in a race but plain water. So <laughs> at this other race we went to, yeah, because everybody's got their hydro drinks and whatever they right. want I, I don't have any of that kind of stuff and I remember being at a race in in Russia and there was a press conference IAAF press conference for elite runners and I was invited to sit there amongst the Kenyans and Ethiopians it was like oh I'm completely overawed here and after the press conference they had put on a lunch for elites and one of the Kenyan coaches said to me are you coming to lunch and I said, no, I don't actually eat lunch. And I thought I was going to get a lecture of, oh, you've got to do this. He said, oh, really? Why is that? I said, they only eat one meal a day. Um, and he said, oh, that's interesting. You, the warrior diet. And I kind of looked at him and kind of said, yes. Yeah, oh, yes, the warrior diet. Yes, that's what it is. Warrior diet. Yes, warrior diet. And um, intermittent fasting. Oh, yes, yes, I'm a great exponent of intermittent fasting. And and actually, all it is, it suits me. I write for decades back when I used to work in London, I used to cycle to work. It just was the best way that I conducted my life. I found it always fueled me very well. And now there are people uh, talking about for rest and recovery and rehabilitation because digestion takes a lot of energy. But seriously, it just suits me. I'm very. The, I don't have talent. I'm 
very keen to say this to people. I have no talent for running. I have nothing at all in the tank with talent. I have great mental fortitude and a great belief in the reason that I'm running, which I th- actually I think fuels me more than any diet ever could. Um, yes, and I'm for, you're running for a mission. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm very determined and I've got a lot of self-discipline. I've got that's the one thing that I do have in absolute abundance. So I, I do and self-belief. You radiate confidence and can do. That's just something that is so strong in you. Where do you get this from? The confidence I have is that I'm not going to let the animals down. I'm not going to yes. do that. And I do doubt, obviously, I am very, people don't believe that I am I uh, very insecure when it comes to my running in terms of I know that I train very hard and marathon running is very much like an equation you you work out how much you can train how many miles you're doing get the sessions right get the mix of the sessions right keep doing them over probably a 10 to 12 week period taper correctly and then if luck is with you and you do need some luck in terms of the weather your health your fitness injury status you will be able or I could always deliver on the day the training I put in so I had great self-belief say as if I was running a marathon on April the 13th in London on January the 11th when I really didn't feel like going out and doing a long run I had I had the self-belief that it will count it won't count today in terms of you won't see great reward but on race day you will and the better runner you can be delivering on race day is the better advocate you can be for the animals and what you believe, i.e. showing that vegans didn't do anything. So it started with just wanting to complete a marathon. But when I've got the vegan runner vest on, when I thought about it, if I can place in the biggest marathons in the world, if I can run 238 in a marathon, if I can break sub 240, that is the best advocacy I can deliver for for promoting what I want I want to in a positive way I've never been about negativity and I've never been about I couldn't go to 50,000 runners at the Berlin Marathon and individually address them and convince them to be vegan but if they see somebody in a vegan runner vest walking in to the elite start with Haile Gabriselassie and the the other elites that are there they're going to associate that with excellence and that's what I wanted to do that's all I realized that's all I could do. But yeah, the belief is in the passion that I won't let the animals down. I would rather literally die trying. And I I work very hard for that. There's nothing, there's no secret that I've got, even to this day. I'm running for England next month in a 10K and a half marathon. I then have still qualified for the elite star of the London Marathon. So I'm out there with the front runners. So for me now, it's about showing longevity. Two decades I've been doing this. I've never had a running injury. Never had a running injury. I have had running injuries which have impacted my running. Like when you said when I went to um, the uh, Marathon de Sable uh, for the first time in 2012, I mixed up my running at this point because when I'd been doing the big city races, yes, I was getting some kind of positivity for myself, for the fact that I've got this injury, the fact that 
the flying firefighter, as I was called at the time, but not veganism. I wasn't, the people weren't focusing so much on the vegan element. So then I decided to mix it up a bit and go and break course records, go around the world and win marathons um, on the road, just 26.2 on the road. That kind of worked okay, but still there wasn't the interest in the diet, the reason I was out there, why I was doing this, how I was able to sustain this. So um, that's when one of my friends, and I'm always very careful to say my friends suggested this and my friends suggested that but and people think well if your friends suggest you go and run 250 kilometers across the desert with a giant backpack what do your enemies tell you to do but anyway <laughs> one of my friends told me you've done you've run as flamboyantly fast as any anybody could possibly hope for you to do with 238 you placed in the big races why don't you do the toughest foot race on the planet as it is billed the marathon the sable and I, oh what's that it's a week ultra stage race roughly ish a marathon a day with one day's just over a double marathon but the problem is with it in temp it's running temperatures of over 50 degrees mm. um you're carrying your own supplies for the whole week so you've probably got a 10 kilogram backpack it's run in the most hostile of terrains in the Sahara desert it's sand dunes like 800 feet high really difficult conditions so it's not an easy challenge. It's certainly not an easy challenge because I wasn't just doing it as a vegan. I was doing it as an ethical vegan in terms of all the equipment you need, including your sleeping bag, has to be synthetic. So mine yeah. weighed three times and was about three times as big as everyone else's because at the time, you know, a decade ago, there weren't the products available for you to buy that were really lightweight and, and, and plant-based vegan. So it was a big challenge. But what made it even worse is the week before the race, I was at the sanctuary. Uh, one of my elderly horses, next racehorse, Charity, she um, got herself cast in a box and uh, in a stable, loose box. And um, it was imperative I got her up quickly. And so I, I dragged her to her feet. And but in doing so, she stepped backward and stepped on my right foot, and oh. she fractured two of my toes. So now I'm facing going and doing the toughest foot race on the planet with two fractured toes and uh, it, it was been the competitor in me I I wanted to go I couldn't just sit at home and not go I thought perhaps I could do it if I don't go I'll never know it had at the time the internet was kind of a embryonic but it had gone around the world that this vegan woman was trying to to tackle this tough foot race and I felt a, a heavy weight of responsibility to, to try and do it for the animals my family and close friends and my doctor only knew that I'd, I'd got these fractured toes. I didn't want to tell other people because I didn't want that to be the defining thing or it's an excuse or somebody would say, oh, she fractured her toes because she's got, probably got brittle bones because she's a vegan. So I was kind of in the trap of what to do. So I went off there. I, I, I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for, to be quite honest with you. But they do say when you're doing this race, you must buy shoes, unless you are used to running in 50 plus degrees heat, uh, buy shoes that are a size too big because your feet will swell when you get out there. Minus right foot is swollen before I got out there. And I crammed my feet into my shoes. Couldn't buy a bigger pair because they'd all been stitched up with um, Velcro uh, to put sand gaiters on because the one thing you do not want in that race is to get sand mm. in your shoes because I've seen people, one guy in 2012 he had to have a, a skin graft on his um, soles of his feet because he got into right. such a mashed up state. Um, so I'm faced with going out there with all this extra burden but I got through it. 
I was in terrible pain, like unbelievable pain. I can't even begin to describe because um, during the long stage, which was I think the fourth day of, I said to one of my fellow competitors, I need your advice. What do you think this is on my little toe? Because I couldn't see because I hadn't got much of a head torch and he got a, a quite strong beam on his and it was nighttime. And he said, at first glance, Fiona, and bearing in mind, I'm no doctor. He said, I think that's the bone sticking out of your. But the worst of it is at the time, this is how irrational your thought process becomes. I thought, oh, I don't want to show it to the race doctors because they'll chuck me out of the race and I won't be allowed to complete it. So I bound my foot up with gaffer tape that's all I got and completed the race and I didn't do I finished midway down the field you know and I, I placed in the marathon stage because that is my territory just straightforward marathon running on slightly flatter terrain is my territory but because I'd shown a great example in humanity during the race in terms of the fact that I've rescued a lady who was really struggling she'd had a, a very bad time and I, I rescued her the race said look if you want to come back next year we'll give you a place and you're probably thinking why would anyone want to go back and do it again but I am that kind of person I wanted to go back twice more yeah just well just just (laughs) the heck of it yeah um I I agreed I wanted to go back and try and really hit it hard without the fractured toes but in the meantime it was another of my friends that said look you've done marathon sable now you've got the medal that's all you need to do just you've shown how tough you are you've done the toughest foot race on the planet you've got through it because it does have a great dropout rate that race it's it's not easy so he said why don't you do the polar marathons north pole and antarctic marathon these are races that i would naturally be thinking about doing bearing in mind i run to promote veganism i've done the conventional, fast, big city, out the front races. It wasn't getting what I wanted in terms of traction and positivity for veganism. But I thought to myself, well, okay, if you are cold and you come in from the cold, you say, oh, it's cold out there. It's like the North Pole. And if you are tired, you feel like, oh, I'm worn out. I feel like I've run a marathon. So if you put the two things together, North Pole and Marathon, that has got to be absolute definitive proof that as a vegan, you can do anything. You can run yes. in minus 40, positive 50. You can run ultra races. You can run you know, races at 14, 15,000 feet altitude. I can run fast marathons amongst the best runners in the world. And um, I inquired about doing the North Pole Marathon. It was prohibitively expensive in terms of I haven't got that kind of money to spend on a race. I've never had I, all the money goes that I've got on the sanctuary and the animals. But the race organiser actually offered me a place in the race if I would go and, and do it the following year. And it, co- it coincided with Marathon Sable. So that's when I went off and, and did the North Pole race. I didn't know if I'd be able to, to run even in minus 40. I didn't do any special training as per usual. I think sometimes my absolute cavalier ignorance towards what I'm letting myself in for is my strong point uh, because yes. actually some people uh, over, overdo it they overstress it for instance when you go to the marathon stable they give you your road book and I remember the first year you got the road book everybody just ran back from the checkpoint when you handed your civic clothes in and literally the race was the next day and they're just all I can hear is people in tents going oh my oh no oh look oh day three have you seen day three and I thought I'm not 
even going to read it because quite honestly, I can't change it. All I can do is worry about it and stress about it and lose sleep over it. And it's not going to change it. So I'm just going to get on and get on with it. And that's probably what I, when I say I don't know anything about running, I obviously know that you've got to put one foot in front of the other and the faster you do it, the the quicker you get to the finish line. But other and beyond that, I don't over stress it because I, I can't really do much about the situation so um I didn't know if I'd be able to run on um, on ice or on snow or in the cold conditions and when I got people have been tra- training in kind of industrial freezers on treadmills and I'm thinking I haven't done anything apart from going out when it's as cold as it can get in the UK which isn't that cold but I think sometimes that's what actually gets me through because I don't really think too much about it. I just think, oh, I'll just get on and make the most of it. Um, and you know what? That is actually a really profound thing to recognize and also a profound thing to share because if you yeah. transfer it to the rest of life, when yeah. we overthink things, when we stress ourselves too much, we can become our own worst enemies. Absolutely. And- Absolutely. And, and this is even when people try ask me for advice with the running I, I try to help people as much as I can but I probably say if you're looking for some expert coach or some magic tricks there are there really aren't any it's I don't have a um I don't run with any Stravas or Garmin's or pulse monitors or anything I just have a very plain basic watch and a timer if I want to time anything but I, I come from a time before all those gadgets And we all carry about us the most sophisticated computer known to man. It's just that we don't know how to use it properly. Mm. And that is our brain. So if you listen to what that is telling you and learn how to interpret what it is telling you and adjust accordingly to to your own unique DNA, your own unique requirements, that has always been the most effective way for me, certainly, to train. In almost like less is more don't get over fixated and I have a joke now and people say oh you want to get yourself Garmin or whatever it is now I said no I know what would happen knowing me because I'm miss clumsy to the point of ridiculous I would probably be stressing out what was going on on my wrist <laughs> I would probably look down I would probably trip over and break my leg I don't really need that I'm very good at pace judging because I've had to learn to do that I, I and I am a very basic runner but if I I, uh, I train hard I have fixed sessions and I emphasize and overemphasize the things that a lot of people don't think about. So it sounds a bit appalling to say it. And I don't mean to, to, to you know, be appalling. It's just a natural thing. But rather than fixating so much about what I eat before a race, I also fixate on things like when I'm going to use the bathroom before a race. So I, you can be as fit as you like and as fast as you like. But if you develop stomach cramps at 22 miles in a marathon, you're not going to run your best time. So right. it's the little body That's, thing that yeah. I know my own body very well. And not appalling very, at all. It's not appalling yeah. at all. It's a very smart thing to do, a natural thing to do, you know how you function and you know how to make your function to function yourself best. Yeah. And, and that's about the discipline. That doesn't come just two mornings a year in, in, in the race. It's the, the lifestyle I have, a very disciplined lifestyle, a very set regime. It works through into producing what I need to produce on race day. And it's the same with the training. I used to train a very long run, 
between 22 and 28 miles every Sunday morning because ultimately, certainly for road marathons, that's when you're going to be asked to deliver your event. You're going to have to, nine o'clock or 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, go out and deliver that event. Okay, you don't train at full pace because you couldn't do but your body has to know if you train hard, you'll race hard. And if you don't train hard, you probably won't race hard because at the point when you get to a race and you're just suddenly putting yourself into a situation, your body into a situation where you're physically and mentally in a very stressed situation, if you're not used to it, you'll probably react badly to it. But if this is what you're used to doing, you're just taking it one step further on race day. And um, then that's what I... Yeah, that's the natural flow. And Fiona, you have achieved so much for the animals, which is your purpose. What are your goals for the future? Are there, is there anything else you're going to compete in? Any new challenges? You mentioned a race that's coming up before. Yeah, I'm running for England in the 10K and the half marathon. And I'm looking to break a world record age group world record in, in the 10k to pro to show versatility i've done 250 kilometer races which are in deserts to come back to the road and show that versatility i think will illustrate beautifully not just the longevity but the sustainability of my plant-based or vegan diet i, I was hoping to do marathon the sable again but we Obviously, we're not sure if it's going to go ahead or what, yes. what will happen there. Basically, just to keep going, always feeling blessed. A lot of people have written to me and said, it seems futile running at the moment when there aren't races. But I say, well, spin it around and think none of your running is futile or, or a waste of time because think how lucky you are to be able to get out there and do it at all. So that's right. the blessing, whether it's in a race or not, that's the blessing to just be able to get out there and enjoy your own body and your own mind and your own freedom. Obviously, I want to continue to be able to manage the sanctuary and, and care for the animals here and just pro promote veganism in a positive way. Um, there's lots of races that are I could and, and, and would like to do, but if I can, I can never do another race for whatever reason, so be it. I, I just feel very blessed to be able to continue to, if I want to, run 100 miles a week, to be able to run 36 minutes for a 10K and to show other people that this could be you too and to encourage them to take responsibility for their own health perhaps. But sometimes I look at people, we, we do have a little bit of an obesity problem in the UK. And it's almost rather than to blame people for that, to show them, to lead them to know that it's almost like being a prisoner in your own body. And there's so much more available to you if you are healthy and yeah. the joy of health and the joy of appreciating health. Picking them up where they are and showing them a way to really live their full potential and yeah. not be prisoners by certain physical or even psychological constrictions. Yeah, and I do think also that running particularly is a great benefit to um, mental health as well. Yes. Uh, just being able to be out there with your own thoughts. I run, uh, when I do run, I, I don't run with music or gadgets or anything like that and it's just me and being out there in the elements in the wilderness at peace with nature and I, I don't mind if it's raining or snowing or wind because that's part of nature and allowing yourself to be united with nature and mm. 
that's the joy of it for me. And I don't really ever look at things negatively. I always try to look at things positively. I try not to judge others. Um, You're too busy exploring myself. And now the reasons probably why I've done things, I I look back and think, why was that? I want to learn more. People say, oh, haven't you done enough? But to me, there are only two gears. It's forward or backwards. And (laughs) you want to keep moving forward because even if you just stand still, others around you are moving. So you want, I just want to keep moving forwards and using any opportunity I get for the benefit of the animals. And tell me, Fiona, the moving forward that you've done all your life, literally and figuratively with running marathons and everything, you are moving for the animals and for your cause, for what you believe in. What are the things that have supported you? Are there any practices that you can share with us that have benefited you and supported you mentally, physically, or spiritually? Obviously, the running is one of them. But is there anything else you would like to share with the audience that has kept you going? I think just being able to be blessed enough to go out and Mm -hmm. observe the things that, okay, for instance, I realize life is never going to be perfect. I think a lot of people strive for the unattainable. Yeah. But for me, there will be perfect moments within life and it's being able to recognize them. And they're not always what you would think. So, for instance, a moment, a transitory moment when you're in the fields and the warmth of the sun on your cheek Mm. and to look up and see a beautiful scene where a cow might be grazing just happily, harmoniously grazing. They're the perfect moments to not Mm. constantly be on that kind of agenda where I think media and marketing is always telling you, but if you did this, if you look like this, if you bought this, if you had this, if you went there, life you bet would be better. And to Mm. be able to look inside yourself and actually explore yourself and realise that actually life it to make life better on the outer you've got to be at one with yourself on your inner self Mm -hmm. and I I have worked on that to literally identify rather than constantly looking at things I haven't got on the bad things or perceived bad things looking at the beauty of the things that I do have the ultra stage races have actually really helped me with that really Mm -hmm. going without things and coming back and staring in the kitchen what what are you doing I'm looking at that what is it it's a miracle it's a tap and water is coming out and I'm so blessed that I can put a glass underneath it and drink it so Mm. many people do not have that and just the little things the perfect things that seem nothing to many people that you don't apparently appreciate until it's too late learn to appreciate those things right now and yeah my running is my greatest I like to work very hard I like to uh, absorb myself in work I don't really like to sit still very much in the day I like to get up very early I like to get up before dawn because I I think that there's a great it's a very great spiritual thing to see almost that veil lifted off another day and you're able to participate in that day another day that you've been afforded to be able to do good that's very important to me and just been around uh, honestly I love being around my animals I love the the family that I have here and um, just been very appreciative for the very very simple things that people take for granted it's the most important thing to me 
Agreed. And for people who would like to learn more about your mission, about yourself, where can they best connect with you, Fiona? They can uh, look me up on the internet. <laughs> I am actually going to say this now. I have so little to do with the social media things. I don't know what that is. If you search for Fiona Oak, <laughs> on Google, I'm a bit I'm very basic. Um, you will find me and you will find me at towerhillstables.com. And if you write to me, I will will write. But I, you can find about my work on, on it's, it's us on the internet. I don't push myself. Everybody tells me, Fiona, you should really learn more about how to self-promote and how... It's not in me to do that. I've never done yeah. this for self-promotion. I'm on, obviously, I'm on Instagram or as a page on Instagram and uh, Fiona Rose. <laughs> but I, I truly, I've never done Years ago, I was contacted by an animal rights group in Sweden. And they said, oh, my gosh, we've seen the image of you in the London Marathon coming up the mile, and it is incredible. I'm running alone in the vegan runner top. Um, of the London Marathon I'm obviously placing highly and the organizers are waiting for me and um, they said would it be possible for us to use that image for a billboard that we want to put up in Stockholm the only problem is and they called it a problem we can't we don't want the name we just want the image the vegan runner image and mm -hmm. I said at the time I don't want my name is the material it's the message that's the most important thing, the positivity of the vegan message. I don't want my name everywhere. I don't want to be, I don't want to be, um, I don't, praised or, or adored. I just want animals to not suffer and for a better world for everyone. That's truly all I want. So uh, walking into a room with a, a selfie stick and taking pictures of myself, it's not me. And I can't pretend it to be me. And, and that's the funny thing. When Keegan made the film, Running for Good, he came over and he was going like, where are all your medals and your trophies? And I said, I really don't know. I, I They're somewhere around. But when I've come back from a race, that's the thing that's most important. What I've done on race day, not self-congratulating myself or whatever. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm just interested in, is this something else I've done for the animals? I say, yeah, I came top 20 in the London Marathon. Did I win my age group in Berlin? Did I come 50? Yes, yeah, that's what's been important to me for the vegan message and all the positivity that's brought. And he actually said to me, I think it's really clever of you to to have your little teddy bear with you all times Percy goes everywhere with me my little teddy bear and he's he's almost a foil for me to hide behind because I don't want the attention myself I really don't I just want a better world for everyone and I don't want people to argue about their differences I want people genuinely to celebrate their similarity and that's so important to me so I I say go out if I've done it I am a nothing I'm a no one I've achieved very little and I know that I, I the, the one strong point I have is that I know very little but I accept that and I want to learn more and I want to do more and I'm blessed to be able to have the opportunity to be able to do that but if I can do it Miss Limpalong as I call myself you can do it you can achieve any goal out there specifically women specifically you know to, to self-belief you can do this when I've gone out there and I've like um, won like marathons and beaten everyone in the race, that's possible. It's possible for me and it's possible for you. Just sky's the limit. Don't dream. Go out and do it. So rather than asking 
I'm always wanting to help people in any way I can, shape or form, to encourage them. But live your dreams. Don't live your life through other people's lives on, you know, the, the old social media and that. Go out and, and do it for yourself and do the positive things. And that's what does worry me about younger people today. They seem to live their life through a little thing that they carry around with them, but they miss the beautiful moments. They miss real life. So, yeah, I, I I don't know. I might go out for a run this evening and I might die. But if I do, <laughs> um, I'll know I've done everything I can. And when I do eventually depart from this world, I don't want to live with regrets. And at the moment, I, I, yeah, honestly, I can look back and say I couldn't have done any more. I, I don't know. I, I want to do more, but I, I'm constantly seeking ways of doing more. But I, I've not done it for me. I don't. I don't want people to adore or worship or or idolize me. I just want I, I genuinely just want to help the animals. I see the suffering that's going on in the world. I'm so acutely aware of suffering and pain yes. and um terror and fear and it's so horrible and it's we generate these horrible um, auras that we it's just incomprehensible to me. Just a better world and I'll pop up. That's and your, your life is truly dedicated to service. And I find it so awesome, awe in the truest sense of the world, that despite all the negativity, all of the things that are going on, you are someone who just moves forward and Fiona you have put such a huge smile on my face such a huge smile in my heart and I know you're doing this every day with people all around the world just by being who you are it's been such a privilege to talk to you and such a joy thank you for sharing your time with us today thank you for having me It really is a pleasure. And I'm, I'm sorry I'm not very good on social media, but if people do want to write to me, there, there are ways. It's very obvious. It's just not very obvious for me. <laughs> I don't do it very much. But, yeah, if I can help anyone, I will. That's all I want to do. Wonderful. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Accelerated evolution.